Hello and welcome to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast that splices more commas than the United Church of Christ. Last time, we considered the covenant of circumcision and the location of violent power differentials between Yahweh and Abraham and between Abraham and the boys and men of his household in Genesis 17. We look today at Genesis 18, specifically at the section where Abraham haggles, bargains, or barters with God for the fate of the city of Sodom. We are skipping over the first section of this chapter, which talks about three mysterious visitors, because I'm sure that story will come up in the narrative lectionary next year or the year after. We've taken many detours on our journey from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, a hop, skip, and jump the narrative lectionary doesn't mind making, but we've found it necessary to dig into some more context. Today, we're interested in the way Abraham's interactions with God remind me, at least, of unhealthy family systems. We're not doing this to criticize Abraham or God or the scriptures, but to look as closely as possible through all kinds of lenses at what's actually going on in the text. How does it strike us? What does it mean? What does it matter? We'll pick up then in verse 20 of chapter 18. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. Am I the only one who thinks anthropomorphizing here is, well, kind of funny? It's, there's nothing funny about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or about the way the story that unfolds has been used throughout history to justify atrocities and injustices against queer people. What I do find baffling, though, is the continued insistence on things like Yahweh needing to go down and see if the people have done things that are as bad as he, always he, has apparently heard or apparently thinks. The real punchline is when God says, if not, I will know. But apparently only if I come down there and have a looky-loo. Obviously, this tells us something, and I'm not sure what, about what the writer or the tradition here thinks about Yahweh's personality, power, and, it would seem, limitations. Verse 23, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Some commentators have used that last line to suggest a common ancient Near East view of universal standards of righteousness or justice that even deities are bound to. I don't think it has to be read in that way, and that way of reading certainly raises all kinds of questions about Abraham's unwillingness to question Yahweh when Yahweh tells him to sacrifice his young son Isaac. But back to the text. The Lord, and here again it's Yahweh, Yahweh said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He said, He answered, rather, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. All right, that's the end of verse 33. So what are we to make of this fawning? Um, The very first thing it reminds me of is the way people in abusive family systems tiptoe around the parent or spouse with intense anger issues. You know how this works. If you can even breach a subject, you do it like Abraham does. I don't want to start a fight, but, or, now don't get mad at me, but, Abraham comes off to me like a victim of an intensely unbalanced relationship. We talked last time about the power differentials inherent in the circumcision covenant. Perhaps Abraham doesn't want to be forced to put any more skin, so to speak, in the game. Bad jokes aside, I don't want to gloss over the even larger issue. Yahweh is fixing to destroy an entire population center, the quote-unquote good along with the quote-unquote bad, until Abraham intervenes. There are all kinds of possible rhetorical reasons for the writers or redactors of this text to present Yahweh in this fashion. We can guess at some of them, and we can go deep, deep, deep into the research and all of that, and all of that is well and good. However... If you're of the belief that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and that God is really like this, you're stuck between a rock and a salt pillar. You're not free to fellowship with the folks behind the Bible's compilation, to consider their stories, their anxieties, their concerns, their needs, their lived-in tensions, their biases, their prejudices, their hatreds. All you can do is theological acrobatics, convincing yourself that it's okay for Yahweh to level entire cities or later to demand, and that's right, demand, the wholesale slaughter of women and children. We didn't talk about the flood, but that's another example. And you can believe those things about God if you want to, but keep him, always him, far away from me. Believing in biblical inerrancy is not, no matter what your fundamentalist neighbor says, a high view of Scripture. Using all the tools at our disposal to figure out why certain people in certain places and times believed or propagated abhorrent things about God, and understanding that Scripture is a particular kind of witness alongside reason and experience, that all of our talk about God can't help but fall short, and extending that grace right back to Scripture, that's the highest view of Scripture I can imagine. If your Christianity requires acceptance of a certain set of sociological, theological, even political beliefs about the Bible before anyone can see the living God, Jesus might as well still be in the tomb. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Worst Church Ever. If it was helpful to you or if you enjoyed it or if you'd like to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and we appreciate the time that you've spent with us today and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Take care.